For most of history, man has had to fight nature to survive. In this century, he is beginning to realize that in order to survive, he must protect it. If you've only heard of one famous oceanographer, that person is probably Jacques Cousteau, originator of that quote. For decades, the faces of ocean research were, 99 times out of 100, white men. On occasion, female masters of the deep arose, like the legendary Sylvia Earle. Despite the fact that oceans touch 151 of the world's 195 current nations, popular media persists in presenting the sea as the dominion mainly of men, and still mainly as that of white men. One study found that there are more white men named Mike who appear as shark experts on Discovery Channel's famous Shark Week programming than there are expert women and people of color. Want an anecdote to wash down that data? In 2017, I appeared in a show for Shark Week titled Sharks and Volcanoes. The host was a shark biologist who, coincidentally, was a white man named Mike. We had a great time looking at the relationship between sharks and volcanoes, but when the program was ready to air, we were informed the title was now the much more ominous Devil Sharks. I was not amused. I'm your host, Jess Phoenix, and this is Science. What I experienced during my foray into the world of shark research, or the televised version of it, did nothing to represent the true state of ocean research, where nearly half of scientists are women, and active research is done worldwide by people of all races and ethnicities. Now that we've dipped our toes into the shallow end of the state of shark science and representation, let's dive into the deep with two of the founders of an organization dedicated to breaking down the doors to the science of sharks. All aboard! Today, I am joined by two of the founders of one of the most intriguing and, in my opinion, excellent nonprofits that I've heard of in the last few years. Uh, the group is called Minorities in Shark Sciences, which, of course, makes a really cool acronym, MISS. Uh, and so we, today we've got Amani Weber-Schultz, who is the CFO for the org, and Jada Elcock, who's the director of PR. So yay, public relations. And... These two fantastic people are PhD students and they love sharks, which is why I wanted to talk to them. So that's my tiny intro. It doesn't at all capture who you are. So would you like to introduce yourselves for our listeners? Hello, everyone. My name is Jada Elcock. Yes, I am a PhD student at the MIT and Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution Joint Program for Biological Oceanography, which is a mouthful. So I just say the MIT hooey. JP for BO, which is still a really big mouthful, but it's fine. <laughs> Ultimate soup. <laughs> exactly. Um, I'm researching um, ecology, movement ecology of predators, specifically basking sharks is going to be one of the things that I'm focused on for my dissertation. I've kind of been all over the place in the world of science, jumping back and forth between the East and West Coast, but I grew up in the middle of the desert. So how I got to the ocean, we're not really sure, but here we are. Um, I'm going to ask you about that in a little bit, because yeah, that's a kind of a convoluted path. But okay, so take it away, Amani. Hello, everyone. My name is Amani. I'm also a PhD student at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. Not so much of a mouthful, but I usually just say NJIT. Um, I study shark functional morphology and swimming kinematics, which is indeed a large mouthful. Um, but basically, I'm just really curious about 
why they look the way that they do and that how that assists in their uh, how that assists them in their environments and in swimming. I also have been all over the place in the science field. I do a lot of science communication as well. And contrary to Jada, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, right next to the Pacific Ocean. So I guess we can see a slightly clearer line to here now with that. My knowledge of your organization, Miss, um, is basically it, it coalesced after the Black in Nature and Black Birders Week became a really prominent trend on social media. And it was essentially a response or like an evolution of what came out of the George Floyd protests uh, and the racial reckoning that the country was going through, country and world in some cases. Obviously, it speaks to representation, but I, I want to hear it from you two. Like, how did the push to create mist happen? And has your mission shifted at all in the almost three years since then? I would say that I don't think our mission has really shifted that much. We've just kind of extended it and just like added more onto it of not just providing a space for all of these scientists, but also trying to get them the recognition that they deserve and being a resource for all of these like media companies. Like we're partnered with Nat Geo to come and find diverse scientists to, to feature in their shows so that people can actually see like, this is more of what science looks like. It's not just the same five white guys going out tagging sharks every time. I think that our mission has pretty much largely stayed the same. We've just been able to provide more opportunities and more, I guess, reach for our members to be able to get their names out there and get their science out there, which is really exciting. And in terms of like how it all was founded, I think that we all kind of realized like we were kind of sick of being the only person that looked like us in a room filled with our colleagues where you just look around and you're like, I feel isolated, even though you're surrounded by people. And that is such a, a crappy feeling. It's not fun. And so I think that we all kind of just came together and we're like, Hey, if we all were in a room together, it would feel a lot less isolated, wouldn't it? Because we all, you know, have some shared experiences. And so um, out of that came, miss and they were like i think it was jasmine was like lol we should start a club and then she was like no for real we need to do this and <laughs> we got together on twitter started a group chat none of us had ever met in person um and then we had our first zoom call and two weeks later we launched a nonprofit organization with no experience on how to get it started but that's what we did <laughs> so basically you built the car as you were driving down the road <laughs> yes we're still building the car, if we're being honest. <laughs> oh, yeah. Our car is a little rusty. We're trying to get some body work done. <laughs> well, it's it's having it right next to the ocean all the time. It just oxidizes. What can you yeah. do? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so has it been a largely positive experience or has there been a lot of the the more serious aspects that people of color and people from traditionally underrepresented communities in the sciences, you know, is, is there more discussion of of that at all? Or is it basically a, we're doing this together and we're going to make it great? Like, is or is it a mix? <laughs> it's been an overwhelmingly positive experience just to know that we are making a difference for, for people so that they don't have to feel the way that us four felt when we decided that shark science was the thing that we wanted to do. Um, and so I've gotten a lot of joy in just being able to be a part of an organization that is able to create these opportunities for our members and see all of their like smiling faces and see some of them go to grad school after doing a fellowship with Miss and things like that. So overwhelmingly positive. And I think also positive in the fact that it seems like since we founded Miss, those talks that you specifically talked about 
are happening a lot more, which I think is also a very positive thing because they needed to happen. And I think that Mist kind of created a large looming presence that was like, this must happen. And so a lot of people kind of fell under that umbrella and they were like, okay, if this one organization is doing this, I think it's doable for all of us. I, I would agree. I kind of had the same sort of experience of it has been very largely positive. And of course we have like the negative comments of like, why are you making it about race? And I'm like, mm, jokes on you. You've kind of made everything about race. That's why we're doing this. Like, hello. Um, and so we've of course had, you know, some negative commentary and it's a fact of life that that's going to happen no matter what it is that you're doing. So we just kind of, if we get a valid criticism, we obviously take that to heart and we like consider what we can do about it. But if it's just someone mad because they're going to be mad, then we kind of just push it off to the side and say, we don't have time for you. We have a lot of other important things to focus on. And that is providing opportunities and experiences for our members and creating a community that we think was and still is very needed and important. You're, you're, conviction and your caring for this really shines through. So I think that's what people look for in if they think about a nonprofit they want to support or a group they want to be part of. They really want to see not just themselves in the group, but they want to see like a good version of themselves. And so I think that when as far as it comes to representation from my admittedly not very important position, it looks to me like you all are killing it. I just I think it's so great. And it's not something I would have heard about when I was in grad school between like 07 and 2010. So we're having, we're talking about a huge cultural shift that's happened in less than a generation. And it's because of people like you. So that's pretty cool. And uh, all right. So I do want to talk about sharks now. Sorry, not sorry, uh, because uh, <laughs> y'all like sharks and sharks are just the most badass things. Like, I mean, I obviously study volcanoes. So I'm no stranger to people going, oh my God, it's so dangerous. How do you do it? You know, and I'm like, yeah, but there are people who do sharks. There are people who do lions. So like sharks and lions are, are my tie, the coolest animals on the planet. And uh, so it's a good tie. <laughs> so I have to, I have to get the terrible pun in there. Cause I'm like pretty well known for my terrible puns. So I would like to dive into sharks. <laughs> if you have other terrible puns, please feel free to use them. And so I want to know, so Jada, you mentioned how you grew up in the middle of the desert. Why sharks? How sharks? What? I lived in landlocked states my entire life growing up. Um, I went to undergrad on a mountain surrounded by desert. I was nowhere near the ocean until the age of like 22, which was when I started grad school. And I think that it all just kind of stemmed from curiosity that snowballed and science no longer had answers for me. So I had to find the answers myself. My brothers and I always like when we were little, we used to go outside and just explore whatever environment we were in looking for spiders and scorpions and snakes and lizards and whatever else. And I, I think that the curiosity of the ocean, like an ecosystem that I didn't have the opportunity to explore just kind of pulled me in and I had all these complex questions and I was like, okay, I'll watch a bunch of like documentaries and like nature shows and stuff on like Animal Planet and Nat Geo. And I got a kick out of them. That was, those were like my favorite channels growing up. And I learned more and I became more and more curious and I got more and more complex questions until I was like, I don't think science has answers for that. So if I want an answer, I have to just go do the research and figure it out. And then I can help provide those answers to people who are also like, what is happening with these animals? So I guess it was 
kind of the opposite of curiosity killed the cat. It was curiosity gave Jada a career. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, so I know this is this is a relatively new podcast because we haven't when we're recording this, people, we hadn't even released the first episode yet. So you don't know, but the tagline for the podcast is curiosity is the cure. So you basically just tied it in like, boom, 100%, you win something. Wow. I don't have a prize, but I should get prizes. And when I do, I will send you one. Yeah. <laughs> yes. um, I'm not sure what it'll be. It may be like UCS swag or something, but it, you know, whatever. <laughs> I'll send you something because that was perfect. And, and I firmly believe in that curiosity. That curiosity that you have when you're a kid is the kind of thing that, that, inspires and provokes and and just really ignites any kind of change we make in the world I think and and that you guys are making change I mean this is great and and so I then have to ask Amani because you said shark morphology now my expertise in volcanology is lava flow morphology so like the different forms and shapes that lava takes and you're doing the same thing, for, but for sharks. And it's funny because I, you know, admittedly as a geoscientist, like I didn't think about animals having morphology, but they totally do. I want to know what got you into shark morphology. And then um, also if you, if you could answer for me, this question I've had my entire life, my burning question is why are hammerhead sharks a thing? And why are they so dopey? And why do I love them so much? Because they are my absolute favorite. But why Why are hammerhead sharks? With the hammerheads, there's a couple of like different things. The first is that along that hammer part, they ha it's covered in ampullae of Lorenzini, which is basically just an electroreception organ that allows them to sense electricity. So when we as people move, our muscles create little bits of electricity. And those organs allow them to sense that. And one of the things that hammerheads love is rays. And rays love to hang out in the sand where you cannot see them. So one of the theories is that they have this head which allows them to eat the thing that they really like eating because they can swim over the bottom and kind of use their little head as like a satellite dish that's pinging around into the sand until it picks up that whole electroreception um, or electricity coming from the ray. And then it helps them see where the ray is without actually seeing the ray in the sand, which is really fun. You're telling me that basically sharks evolved like their own version of a metal detector for uncovering stuff that's hidden in the sand. Yes. Yes. And they, they use that as they use it in general, right? So if you have a great white, for example, that doesn't typically swim along sandy habitats, they're still using that electroreception to sense different things going on in the water. So all sharks have that, um, the ampullae of Lorenzini, and then they all just kind of use it differently. But that's one of the more common theories I've heard about hammerheads with having that cephalofoil weird looking toolbox on their face <laughs> <laughs> so then, okay so then back to the why, why morphology for you basically i mean the short answer to why morphology is i have always really struggled in school mostly because i have a really hard time with things like exams and being able to kind of put out conceptual thoughts onto pieces of paper and morphology became a thing that i was really interested in because my junior year of college i met my now phd advisor and i loved how hands-on it was and how I could actually see the thing that I was trying to figure out in my head as an image, as opposed to something like math numbers, where I have a really hard time visualizing numbers and what they're doing. Um, and so like right now, as we're talking, I have something 3D printing that I need for research that I'm going to go do next week. And I built the whole thing in my head and then went online and built it into a space to 3D print it. And so I really love the being able to like visually look at something or visually create something that I have sitting in my brain. 
And morphology just let me be like, why shapes? Like, why are you shaped like that? What is this shape? Why do you why do you look like that? And it just ended up being the thing that I was the most curious about and also felt the most, I think, attached. And it felt like a route that wasn't going to make me feel stupid, for lack of a better word. (laughs) So I know a lot of people get scared off from science because they think, oh, I'm not a math nerd, therefore I can't do science. And I think what you're saying basically is that you like the tangible and, and because it has meaning. I mean, the things have the shapes they do. For reasons. It's not random. It's not chance. Um, Amani, you mentioned Great Whites, and there's been a lot of news about Great Whites recently, especially because they seem to be making a comeback off the coast of California, where I am. So they've been in the news, but I was I was reading something in Nature, and it basically said that 59% of, of reef-associated sharks and rays are under extinction threats. And on the flip side, the UN just agreed to the High Seas Treaty. So that would put like 30% of the world's oceans under protection. I'm very realistic. I, I know the score with climate change. I've done climate research, like I get it. So we have the changing climate. We have growing populations and we have things that we want in our lives because it's the 21st century and people don't want to give up their smartphones, et cetera, or their merchandise that needs to be shipped across an ocean. Is the high seas tree, is it something or steps like that? Is that going to be enough to protect the sharks? And in your opinions, what can we do to get our acts together? Because I don't want to see sharks disappear. I I don't want us to make them go extinct in in our lifetimes or any lifetimes, because they're such remarkable examples of, of evolution and biology and how specialized and how successful it can be if humans don't mess it up. I think that that is... A difficult question, obviously, which is why it's, I feel like, taken so long for us to make any headway when it comes to legislation on these topics. But I think one thing to also consider is that, like, this, the High Seas Treaty is like a great step forward. If you have a migratory shark that's crossing all of these country and continental boundaries, you're going to have to have a lot more collaboration between these countries if you're actually going to do anything that's going to reasonably help their populations. Otherwise, I mean, they might get out of one country, move into waters of another country and get caught there and die. So it's nice to, I guess all of this is to say it's it's nice to see these steps forward and it is very exciting, um, but there are also a lot of other steps and a lot of other things to consider. Sounds fair. And Amani, any thoughts? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I read that it took them nearly two decades to actually come to this agreement. So I would say it's a big feat in and of itself. And I also think that it really shows that we all understand that what happens in the ocean that is like a global commons or what we generally share that isn't just your own personal country's waters has large effects on every country and not just one or the other. Um, And so I think in general, like treaties like this, where people are coming together and really trying to figure out with the idea that things would benefit their nation, what also benefits everybody else in the global world um, is really important and really critical, especially with how we have been damaging the ocean over the last, especially I would say like 50 years. So do you have any other thoughts about how marine scientists can connect with people who may not have the access uh, to marine environments? I, I feel like I have a lot of personal experience with this, obviously growing up in landlocked places. Um, and for me, I think a big thing was interacting with people at, uh, aquariums. Um, and like 
recognizing that a lot of the people, whether adults or children or teenagers or whatever, that might go to an aquarium, like in the middle of Phoenix, like maybe they've never seen the ocean before, or maybe they have, but like only once. Um, and I know that there's also a lot of, you know, back and forth about animals in captivity, but I think it's important to consider that without animals in captivity, let's be clear, well kept in captivity, um, then we don't have the opportunity to educate people about the animals that are existing there. Um, and you can't expect people to make decisions about like laws and policies and legislation if they don't know or care about an animal. So I think that a big thing for me growing up was going to an aquarium and being like, oh my gosh, this is the coolest thing ever. I'm now fixated on this and it's going to be my career. That might happen for another little kid that lives in the desert. It kind of makes me wonder like where we go from here. So obviously I don't have my finger on the pulse of the shark research community like you two do, but I'm wondering what you both see as the future of shark research um, from a scientific standpoint, but also from like a diversity and equity standpoint, because I know for a long time, science has had this model of having people from largely white, largely Western influenced cultures parachuting in to different locales around the world and trying to tell the people who were already there how to do their research <laughs> or not letting them do the research. So basically, where, where is shark science heading? Not just shark science, but all science needs native voices in order to succeed. They have an incredible knowledge and connection with the earth that a lot of us don't have. Or again, it's just the way that, you know, their culture and the way that they were brought up. This is a, a way that they think that a lot of us don't think. Um, and I think that their voices, I know that their voices are essential to actually fully understanding the earth and the processes that happen and the animals that we share the planet with and everything. So I just wanted to emphasize the importance of um, getting indigenous voices in into science as well. I, I do think having a more holistic view of the world is only going to help science going forward. And And so I really wanted to see for people who don't have a, a shark researcher in their orbit, <laughs> and maybe they want to get involved in studying, and I'm going to drop the fun word, elasmobranchs, uh, and, and you can explain elasmobranchs if you want. But if somebody, if you don't know someone who's studying elasmobranchs, well, now everyone listening knows you too. But um, they, uh, if they don't have somebody in their backyard who's doing this, or maybe they live in you know the middle of the country, um, and they want to get involved in conservation or research, like what what sort of things can they do to further their curiosity uh, with sharks? Be very curious and read about the things that you are curious about. Um, I think especially with reading and especially if you don't have the access to a person who has all of the knowledge that you want, um, making sure that you're reading about the things that you're curious about, but also that you're getting all of that stuff from different sources so that you have at least a holistic background of what's going on and then you can develop your own opinions um, is really important and also a really great way to just maintain that curiosity and figure out the areas that maybe you want to research or maybe this part of conservation is really interesting to you. And after all of this reading and watching shows and YouTube and podcasts, you realize that there's this like big gap and that's the gap that you want to fill. Like that's how you kind of find the areas that you can fit into. And that's like, that's basically what most people do with their PhD is they're, they're like, there's a gap here. I can fill this gap with the research that I want to do. And that's what scientists are doing all the time. And so just because you don't have a job that says scientist does not mean that you can't be one yourself. You can go the research route. You can go the science communication route. You can do both. 
Um, or you can just listen and find the information when it's interesting to you. You don't have to be like super into science to be allowed to enjoy science at the same time. But this is, we, we are the union of concerned scientists here. And I have to ask you both as scientists. So why are you concerned? Well, uh, I'm concerned because uh, racism is still very much alive. And I want people that come into the field after me to have a better experience than I did. And I know also that I have had a better experience than the people that came into the field before me. I am concerned because it seems like nobody cares about what's happening to the ocean and how we're impacting it. And the fact that it's seen as opinion of whether or not climate change is real or not in this country, that is something that I find incredibly concerning because most other countries in the world are like, I'm sorry, fact is optional now? What is happening in the US? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't get it. Um, I'm concerned because sharks are really cool and I am terrified to see what a, an ocean without them would look like because we would have no clue what the consequences would be. There's way too many shark species. So not too many. There's so many shark species that if they all went Never extinct, too many. Exactly. <laughs> if they all went extinct, I would have no idea what is going to happen to the ocean. I am concerned because I want to keep having funding to do my research so we can find out more awesome stuff about the ocean. But I'm also optimistic that things are moving in the right direction. And I'm excited to see where things continue to go. Same. All the same stuff. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that the only thing I'd add is like, I'm concerned for what won't be here for people who come after us if things don't change. Like Jada and I are both almost 25 and we've seen so many amazing things. And at the rate that we are removing animals from the planet and as it relates to us sharks, I am concerned that by the time I'm 80, someone will never see a hammerhead up close and personal which is probably one of the most magical experiences that I have ever had. I, I get the same level of awe when I see a hammerhead that I did the first time I ever saw one. Every, time. every single time. I probably look like an absolute insane person with how large my smile is every time I see a hammerhead. And I don't want someone to not be able to see all of the amazing majestic animals that we have on this earth. And I think that the way that we're headed, if we don't do things is to the point where there is a lack of amazing animals for people to see. I do think that we are heading in the right direction, absolutely, with passing different treaties and being more concerned about how we are impacting the planet. I don't think that we are at a point where there is absolutely no way to go back. I think that it's a matter of all of us showing how much we care and doing things to help the planet. And then when I'm 80, hammerheads will still be around. Yeah. Yay. There's always hope. And I don't care if it's false hope. There's always hope work towards the things that you think are important and stand up for what you believe in. Ah, that's excellent. You, you two just absolutely killed it in the best of ways. And um, just so you can tell the listeners, because I like to give people tools that they can take action, you know, to better their understanding of whatever it is we talk about on this wild and crazy show. Tell them your website URL, tell them how to find you on social and how to get involved. Miss is, you can find our website is misselasmo.org. Um, and all of our socials, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter are miss underscore elasmo. Um, we also didn't explain what an elasmobranch is. That is a subclass of organisms, um, cartilaginous fishes, a subclass um, that is comprised of sharks, skates, and rays. 
Anyway, Elasmos. No, um, I'm glad you got it in there because I was like, we didn't talk about it, but I was going to make a footnote uh, on the website. But thank you. Thank you. We will put links to all of that um, on the actual page for the for this podcast episode. So thank you so much for being on This Is Science with me, Just Phoenix. And you two are doing fantastic work. Um, thank everybody at Miss for me, uh, from me, for me, thank them all uh, because they're doing life-changing, world-changing work, and it's really exciting to me to uh, to keep an eye on what you're doing and to help promote it when I can. Because you know, look, we're all concerned scientists. If we weren't concerned, we wouldn't be scientists. <laughs> so, thanks so much, and you two have a blast with your PhD work. Thanks so much to Amani and Jada for joining me for this conversation. If you'd like to learn more about ways you can get involved, go to ucsusa.org to read up on our science member network. Huge thanks to Brian Middleton for his audio wizardry and to Omari Spears and Rich Hayes for their support on the back end. I'll catch you on the flip side, science lovers. Science lovers.